Chapter Fourteen of Black Ivory by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: Camping, Traveling, Shooting, Dreaming, Poetizing, Philosophizing, and Surprising in Equatorial Africa. At sunset the travelers halted in a peculiarly wild spot and encamped under the shelter of a gigantic baobab tree. Two rousing fires were quickly kindled, round which the natives busied themselves in preparing supper, while their leaders sat down, the one to write up his journal, the other to smoke his pipe. "'Well, sir,' said Disco, after a few puffs delivered with extreme satisfaction, "'you do seem for to enjoy writing." You go at that log of yours every night as if it was your last will and testament that you couldn't die happy without excutin' and signin' it with your blood. A better occupation, isn't it, replied Harold with a sly glance, than to make a chimney-pot of my mouth? Come, sir, returned Disco, with a deprecatory smile, don't be too hard on a poor feller's pipe. If you can't enjoy it, that's no argument against it. How do you know I can't enjoy it? Why, cause I s'pose you'd take to it if you did. Did you enjoy it when you first began? asked Harold. Well, I can't exactly say as I did. Well then, if you didn't, that proves it is not natural to smoke. And why should I acquire an unnatural and useless habit? Useless? Why, sir, only think of what you loses by not smoking. What a deal of enjoyment! "'Well, I am thinking,' replied Harold, affecting a look of profound thoughtfulness, "'but I can't quite make it out. Enjoyment? Let me see. Do I not enjoy as good health as you do?' "'Oh, certainly, sir, certainly. You're quite up to the mark in that respect. Well, then, I enjoy my food as well, and can eat as much, can't I?' "'No doubt of it,' replied Disco, with a grin. "'I was used to be considered rather a dab at Whittles.' but I must say I knocks under to you, sir. Very good, rejoined Harold, laughing. Then as to sleep, I enjoy sleep quite as soundly as yourself, don't I? I can't say as to that, replied Disco. You see, sir, as I never opens my eyes at her shutting em till the bosun pipes all hands ahoy, I've no means of knowing what you accomplish in that way. On the whole, then, it seems that I enjoy everything as much as you do, and— no, not everything. You don't enjoy backy, you know. But please, sir, don't go for to moralize. I can't stand it. You'll spile my pipe if you do. Well, I shall spare you, said Harold, all the more that I perceive supper is about. At that moment Antonio, who had gone down to a streamlet which trickled close at hand, gave utterance to a hideous yell, and came rushing into camp with a face that was pea-green for terror. Ach! he gasped, a lion, quick, your guns! Every one leaped up and seized his weapon with marvelous alacrity on receiving an alarm so violent and unlooked for. Where away? inquired Disco, blazing with excitement, and ready at a moment's notice to rush into the jungle and fire both barrels at whatever should present itself. No, no, don't go! cried Antonio in alarm. Be cautious! The interpreter's caution was enforced by Chimbolo, who laid his hand on Disco's arm and looked at him with such solemnity that he felt it necessary to restrain his ardor. Meanwhile Antonio with trembling steps led Harold to a point in the thicket 
whence he beheld two bright phosphoric-looking objects which his companion said were the lion's eyes, adding that lion's eyes always shone in that way. Harold threw forward his rifle with the intention of taking aim, but lowered it quickly, for he felt convinced that no lion could possibly have eyes so wide apart unless its head were as large as that of an elephant. "'Nonsense, Antonio,' he said, laughing. "'That cannot be a lion.' "'Oh, yes, him's a lion for sure,' Antonio returned positively. "'We shall see.' Harold raised his rifle and fired, while Antonio turned and fled, fully expecting the wounded beast to spring. Harold himself half looked for some such act, and shrank behind a bush by way of precaution, but when the smoke cleared away he saw that the two glowing eyes were gazing at him as fixedly as ever. "'Pooh!' exclaimed Disco, brushing past. "'I knows what it is. Many a time I'd seed em in the West Indies.' Saying which he went straight up to the supposed lion, picked up a couple of glowworms, and brought them to the campfires, much to the amusement of the men, especially of Jumbo, and greatly to the confusion of the valorous interpreter who, according to his invariable custom when danger threatened, was found to have sought refuge in a tree. This incident furnished ground for much discussion and merriment during supper, in which Antonio, being in no wise ashamed of himself, joined noisily, and Chimbolo took occasion to reprove Disco for his rashness, telling him that it was impossible to kill lions in the jungle during the darkness of night, and that if they did pay them a visit it would be wise to let them be, and trust to the campfires keeping them at a respectful distance. To which Disco retorted that he didn't believe there was any lions in Africa, for he'd heard a good deal about them and traveled far, but had not yet heard the sound of their voices, and what was more didn't expect to. Before that night was far advanced, Disco was constrained to acknowledge himself in error, for a veritable lion did actually prowl down to the camp and salute them with a roar which had a wonderfully awe-inspiring effect on every member of the party, especially on those who heard it for the first time in their lives. Just before the arrival of this nocturnal visitor one of the men had been engaged in some poetic effusions, which claim preliminary notice here, because they were rudely terminated by the lion. This man was one of Cambira's people, and had joined the party by permission. He was one of those beings who, gifted with something like genius, or with superior powers of some sort, have sprung up in Africa as elsewhere, no doubt from time immemorial, to dazzle their fellows for a little, and then pass away, leaving a trail of tradition behind them. The existence there in time past of men and mind far in advance of their fellows, as well as of heroes whose physical powers were marvelous, may be assumed from the fact that some such exist at the present time, as well as from tradition. Some of these heroes have excited the admiration of large districts by their wisdom, others by their courage or their superior dexterity with the spear and bow, like William Tell and Robin Hood but the memory of these must soon have been obliterated for want of literature. The man who had joined Harold was a poet and a musician. He was an improvisatore, composed verses on the incidents that occurred as they traveled along, and sang them with an accompaniment on an instrument called the sanza, 
which had nine iron keys and a calabash for a sounding-board. The poet's name was Mokomba. With the free and easy disposition of his race he allowed his fancy to play round the facts of which he sang, and was never at a loss for, if the right word did not come readily, he spun out the measure with musical sounds, which meant nothing at all. After supper was over, or rather when the first interval of repose occurred, Mokomba, who was an obliging and hearty little fellow, was called on for a song. Nothing loath, he seized the sanza and began a ditty, of which the following, given by Antonio, may be regarded as a remarkably free, not to say easy, translation. Mokomba's Song Cambira goes to hunt, yo-ho. Him spear am never blunt, yo-ho. Him kill de buffalo quick, and love de porridge thick. Him chase de lion too, and stuck em true and true. De potamus as well, and more than me can tell. Hab down before em fell, yo-ho. De English come to see, yo-ho. Dat wery good for we, yo-ho. No take us way for slaves, nor put us in our graves, but set de black mans free when catch em on de sea. Dem splendid shooters, too. We knows what they can do. Wid boil and roast and stew, yo-ho. One makes em's gun go crack, yo-ho. An elephant on an's back, yo-ho. De dreadful lion roar, de gun goes crack once more. De bullet fly and splits, one monkey into bits. Yo-ho! De glowworm next arise, de Englishman likewise, with wary much surprise, and hit em tween de eyes. Hooray, hooray, um cries, and run to fetch em's prize. Yo-ho! The last yo-ho was given with tremendous energy and followed by peals of laughter. It was at this point that the veritable lion thought proper to join in, which he did, as we have said, with a roar so tremendous that it not only put a sudden stop to the music, but filled the party with so much alarm that they sprang to their arms with surprising agility. Mindful of Chimbolo's previous warning, neither Harold nor Disco sought to advance, but both looked at their savage friend for advice. Now, in some parts of Africa there exists a popular belief that the souls of departed chiefs enter into lions and render them sacred, and several members of Harold Seadrift's party entertained this notion. Chimbolo was one of these. From the sounds of growling and rending which issued from the thicket, he knew that the lion in question was devouring part of their buffalo meat which had been hung on the branch of a neighboring tree not, however, near enough to the fires to be visible. Believing that the beast was a chief in disguise, Chimbolo advanced a little towards the place where he was, and much to our traveller's amusement, gave him a good scolding. "'You call yourself a chief, do you, eh?' he said sternly. "'What kind of a chief can you be to come sneaking about in the dark like this, trying to steal our buffalo meat? Are you not ashamed of yourself? A pretty chief, truly!' You are like the scavenger beetle, and think of yourself only. You have not the heart of a chief. Why don't you kill your own beef? You must have a stone in your chest and no heart at all. That's wary flowery lingo, but it don't seem to convince him, said Disco, with a quiet smile, 
as the lion, which had been growling continuously over its meal all the time, wound up Chimbolo's speech with another terrific roar. At this point another believer in transmigration of souls, a quiet man who seldom volunteered remarks on any subject, stepped forward and began seriously to expostulate with the lion. "'It is very wrong of you,' he said, "'to treat strangers in this fashion. You might have more respect for Englishmen who have come to see your land, and never did you any harm. We are traveling peaceably through the country. We never kill anybody and never steal anything. The buffalo meat is ours, not yours, and it ill becomes a great chief like you to be prowling about in the dark like a hyena trying to steal the meat of strangers. Surely you can hunt for yourself. There is plenty of meat in the forest. Note. See Livingston's Zambezi and its Tributaries, page 160. End of note. As the lion was equally deaf to this man's reasoning, Harold thought it right to try a more persuasive plan. He drew up in a line all the men who had guns, and at a word of command they fired a volley of balls into the jungle in the direction whence the sounds issued. A dead silence followed, but it was deemed advisable not to venture in to see the effect, as men had frequently lost their lives by so doing. A watch, however, was kept during the night, and the fires were well replenished, for they knew that the king of the forest usually shrinks from doing his evil deeds in the light of a strong campfire. We say usually, because they are not always thus shy. Authentic instances are on record of lions having leaped into the center of a bivouac and carried off one of the men in spite of being smitten in the face with flaming firebrands. Fortunately the lion of which we write thought discretion the better part of valor. He retired peaceably. Nevertheless Disco and his friend continued to dream of him all night so vividly that they started up several times and seized their rifles under the impression that he had roared his loudest into their very ears, and after each of these occasions they crept back into their sleeping-bags to re-dream of the lion. The bag which formed each man's couch was made up simply of two mats sewed together, and left open not at one of the ends but at one of the sides, so that a man could roll out of or into it more easily than he could have slid feet first into a sack. It was large enough also for two to sleep inside together, always supposing that the two were of accommodating dispositions. That they had now reached a land which swarmed with wild animals was intimated to some extent by the running past, within fifty yards of their bivouac, of a troop of elephants. It was daybreak at the time, so that, having been thus rudely aroused, they did not deem it necessary to return to rest, but after taking a hasty mouthful of food, set forth on their journey. The usual mode of proceeding on the march was as follows. They rose up about five o'clock, or soon after the appearance of dawn, and swallowed a cup of tea with a bit of biscuit, then some of the men folded up the blankets and stowed them away in the bags, others tied up the cooking utensils, etc., in bundles, and hung them at the ends of carrying sticks which they bore upon their shoulders. The process did not take long. They were soon on the march, either in single file, if the path were narrow, or in groups according to fancy where the ground admitted of their spreading out. About nine a convenient spot was chosen for a halt to breakfast, 
which meat, although not eaten the night before in order to save time in the morning, was at all events cooked on the previous evening for the same end, so that it only needed warming up. Then the march was resumed. A short rest was allowed in the heat of the day when, of course, Disco had a pipe, and much sagacious intercourse with his fellows, and they finally encamped for the remainder of the day and night early in the afternoon. Thus they traveled five or six hours at a stretch, an average from twelve to fifteen miles a day, which is about as much as Europeans can stand in hot climate without being oppressed. This Disco called taking it easy, and so it was when compared with the custom of some travelers whose chief end would appear to be the getting over as much ground as possible in a given time, in order that they may afterwards boast of the same, and for the accomplishment of which they are obliged to abuse and look ferocious at the blacks, cock their pistols, and flourish their whips in a manner which is only worthy of being styled contemptible and cowardly. We need not say that our friends Harold and Disco had no such propensities. They had kindly consideration for the feelings of their niggers, coupled with great firmness, became very sociable with them, and thus got hearty, willing work out of them. But to return from this digression, during the day the number of animals of all sorts that were seen was so great as to induce Disco to protest, with a slap of his thigh, that the whole land from stem to stern seemed to him to be one prodigious zoological garden. It did, and no mistake about it. Disco was not far wrong. He and Harold, having started ahead of the party, with Chimbolo as their guide, came on a wonderful variety of creatures in rapid succession. First they fell in with some large flocks of guinea-fowl, and shot a few for dinner. As they advanced various birds ran across their path, and clouds of turtle-doves filled the air with the bladder of their wings as they rose above the trees. Ducks, geese, and francolins helped to swell the chorus of sounds. When the sun rose and sent a flood of light over a wide and richly wooded vale, into which they were about to descend, a herd of pallas stood gazing at the travellers in stupid surprise, and allowed them to approach within sixty yards before trotting leisurely away. These and all other animals were passed unmolested, as the party had sufficient meat at that time, and Harold made it a point not to permit his followers to shoot animals for the mere sake of sport, though several of them were uncommonly anxious to do so. Soon afterwards a herd of water-bucks were passed, and then a herd of kodos, with two or three magnificently horned bucks amongst them, which hurried off to the hillsides on seeing the travellers. Antelopes also were seen, and buffaloes grazing beside their path. Ere long they came upon a small pond with a couple of elephants standing on its brink, cooling their huge sides by drawing water into their trunks and throwing it all over themselves. Behind these were several herds of zebras and water-bucks, all of which took to flight on getting the wind of man. They seemed intuitively to know that he was an enemy. Wild pigs also were common, and troops of monkeys, large and small, barked, chattered, grinned, and made faces among the trees. After pitching the camp each afternoon, and having had a mouthful of biscuit, the two Englishmen were in the habit of going off to hunt for the daily supply of fresh meat, accompanied by Chimbolo as their guide and game-carrier, 
Antonio as their interpreter, and Mokampa as their poet and jester. They did not indeed appoint Mokampa to that post of honor, but the little worthy took it upon himself for the express purpose of noting the deeds of the white men, in order to throw his black comrades into convulsions over supper by a poetic recital of the same. "'It pleases them, and it don't hurt us,' was Disco's observation on this head. On the afternoon, then, of which we write, the party of four went out to hunt, while the encampment was being prepared by the superintendents of Jumbo, who had already proved himself to be an able manager and cook, as also had his countrymen Masiko and Zambo. "'What a rich country!' exclaimed Harold looking round in admiration from the top of a small hillock on as fine a scene as one could wish to behold, and what a splendid cotton country it might be if properly cultivated. "'So it is,' said Disco, "'and I shouldn't wonder if there was lots of gold, too, if we only knew where to look for it.' "'Gold!' exclaimed Antonio, who sat winking placidly on the stump of a fallen tree. "'There be lots of gold near Zambezi, and other ting, too.' Let's hear what are some of the other things, said Disco. What are there? Oh, let me see. There be coal, lots of coal on Zambezi, any amount of it, and it burn first rate, too. There be iron ore, very much, and indigo, and sugar cane, and ivory. You have hear and see yourself about the elephants, and the cotton, and tobacco. Note. See Livingston's Zambezi and its Tributaries, page 52. End of note. Oh, great plenty of everything everywhere in this year country, but, said Antonio with a shrug of his shoulders, no can make nothing out of it on account of de slave trade. Then I suppose he don't approve of the slave trade, said Disco. No, dat am true, replied Antonio. De country very good for slave trader, but no good for men like me what want to trade proper. Hm. I've more respect for e than I had, said Disco. I suppose you've been up in these parts before now, have ye? No, never, but I have sister what marry one nigger one slave what sold himself, and him tell me much about it. Him's been up here many time. Sold himself? repeated Harold in surprise. What do you mean? Mean dat, returned Antonio. Him was a black free man, called him Chibanti. Him was all alone in de world, lose father, mother, brother, sister, wife, everything by slave-trader, who steal them all away or murder them. So Chiabanti say, what the use to be free? So him go to one master who very good to him's niggers, give him plenty to eat and little to do, and sold himself to him. And what did he get for himself? asked Disco. Got ninety yard of cotton cloth. Did he consider himself cheap or dear at that? inquired Disco. Oh, dear, awful dear. What has come of him now? asked Harold. Don't know, answered Antonio. After him got de cloth, him's master sent him to Quillamane with cargo of ivory, and give him leave to do little trade on him's own account. So him bought a man, a woman, and a boy for sixty yard of cotton, and with the rest hired slaves for de voyage down, and drove a most wonderful trade. But long time since me hear of him, perhaps him's good master be dead, and him go with de rest of de goods and chattels to a bad master who very soon make him sorry him sold hisself. Pushing forward for several days in the manner of which we have attempted to describe, our travellers passed through many varied scenes which, however, 
all bore one mark in common, namely, teeming animal and vegetable life. Human beings were also found to be exceedingly numerous, but not so universally distributed as the others, for although many villages and hamlets were passed, the inhabitants of which were all peacefully inclined and busy in their fields, or with their native cotton, iron, and pottery manufacturers, vast expanses of rich ground were also traversed which, as far as man was concerned, appeared to be absolute solitudes. Entering upon one of these about noon of a remarkably fine day, Harold could not help remarking on the strange stillness which pervaded the air. No sound was heard from beast, bird, or insect. No village was near, no rippling stream murmured, or zephyr stirred the leaves. In short, it was a scene which, from its solitude and profound silence, became oppressive. "'Well, sir,' said Disco, whose face was bathed in perspiration, "'it do seem to me as if we got to the fag end of the world altogether. There ain't nothing nowhere.' Harold laughed, and said it looked like it. But Disco was wrong." It was only the hour when animals seemed to find a siesta indispensable, and vegetables as well as air had followed their example. A few minutes sufficed to prove their mistake, for on entering a piece of woodland a herd of pallas and another of water-bucks appeared, standing as quiet and still as if they were part of a painted landscape. Then, in passing a thick clump of thorns, they could see through openings in the bushes the dim, phantom-like forms of buffaloes, with heads lowered and eyes glaring at them, ready to charge if need be, though too lazy from heat apparently to begin the fray, and willing to act on the principle of let be for let be. Still farther on a native was observed keeping at a respectful distance. He had seen the travellers from afar, and come with noiseless tread to get a nearer view." Halting to rest the party for a few minutes in a shady hollow, Harold threw himself at full length on the grass, but Disco, who, strange to say, did not feel inclined to smoke at the moment, probably because he had only just finished his fifth pipe a few minutes previously, sauntered on alone to the top of the next ridge. He had barely reached the summit when Harold, who chanced to be looking after him, observed that he crouched suddenly behind a bush and after gazing steadfastly for a few seconds over the hill, turned and ran back, making excessively wild demonstrations with head and arms, but uttering no sound. Of course the whole party sprang up and ran towards the excited mariner, and soon were near enough to understand that his violent actions were meant to caution them to make no noise. "'Hush!' he said eagerly, on coming near enough to be heard. "'Keep quiet as mice. There's a slave-gang.' or something uncommon like it, going along on right athwart us. Without a word of reply the whole party hurried forward and gained a point of observation behind the low bushes which crowned the ridge. End of chapter 14 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks.com